Let's turn to Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to do the whole chapter tonight. What's really cool about this passage is that it sheds some light on the times in which Abram lived. It gives us some historical context, which we don't really get because we're thousands of years removed from it. And it also has a really interesting figure, and that is, of course, Melchizedek that we're going to talk about tonight. And by way of application, I think we can learn from this the importance of keeping ourselves separate from the world, separate from alliances with the world, even when we have common goals. Abram will have learned that lesson from last time, and he sets us a great example here. You know as well as I do, these days there's increased pressure on the church specifically to choose a side of whatever issue, every issue, <laughs> throw your lot in with this group or that group, and if you're going to be part of this group, you can't have that, and you need to just be on a team. And what's been difficult is a lot of times the goals of group A or the goals of group B align with certain things as Christians that we want to see. But what's difficult is we know that we can't absorb the whole package. We can't just sign on to the whole charter, if you know what I mean. We ought to have a different perspective on things like that. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, travelers, people that don't really belong here, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We're going to see Abram will refuse to let himself be blessed by the king of Sodom, but he will allow himself to be blessed by Melchizedek, who is a prefigure of Christ. And I think there's a lot for us to learn today, but this will probably be lighter on application than usual. That's okay. I think there's a lot of fun for us to learn here. Sometimes we can't help being caught up in current events, but we ought to conduct ourselves in them differently because we have a higher loyalty to Christ and we're only concerned with his goals and his purposes. Amen? Well, let's read the first 12 verses of Genesis 14. There's a lot of names here, so buckle up. <laughs> In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaba Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, 
the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. This is the first recorded instance of war in the Bible, if that interests you. I'm sure it was not the first war, but it's the first one that matters to us biblically. And we see that Lot is caught and is kidnapped. He was living in Sodom at the time. Now we read through this. It's hard enough reading about recent wars and figuring out who all the armies were and where all the boundaries were and where the different battles are. A few years ago was the 100-year anniversary of World War I, and I realized that I did not know very much about World War I. So I set myself to reading a bunch of history books about World War I, and it was a different world even back then. The countries were all different. I didn't recognize place names. I didn't recognize political figures. And now you backed it up thousands of more years, and it gets that much more difficult. So we're going to take some time to orient ourselves here, because I think seeing this makes this passage come alive a little bit more. So we have on one side the kings of Shinar. Shinar is Babylon. This is where the Tower of Babel had been built. Elisar, we're not quite sure where that was. There are a lot of people that have very different ideas. Elam, which we know about that one, that was where Susa was, which is where the book of Esther takes place. So it would become part of the Persian Empire, modern-day Iran. And Goyim. Now there's debate on that too, about whether Goyim is the Hebrew word Goyim, which just means nations, or if this is a specific place named Goyim. Most people think it's just saying this was the king of Goyim. It was a king of a lot of other nations that also joined. Or it can mean Goyim. Some people have said there's a place around Galilee, north of where Abram lived, that was called Goyim. We're really not sure. But with the, the possible exception of that nation, all these places come from around the area of Ur, where Abram had lived before. So they're coming all the way over from Iran and modern-day Iraq to what would be, of course, modern-day Israel and even south of that. And what sparked this war, you had a guy named Kedor Laomer, who was the king of Elam, and he was the, the feudal lord over these five cities. They were paying tribute to him. He had beaten them in war at some point, and he left them alone, but they had to send gold and silver and everything else. And these five cities were Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Shemeber, and Bela, which is Zoar. And they rebelled against him. They, they figured, you live all the way over there. We live all the way over here. What are we sending you gold for? So they rebelled. And a year later, he got his armies together and came after them. Now, these five cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Shemeber, and Zoar, Zoar is the only one we can positively identify. We know where it was. It was right at the southern tip of the Dead Sea. Now, this is only to be expected because, as you may know, in Genesis chapter 19, God is going to destroy Sodom, Gomorrah, Shemeber, and Adma. And Zoar is the city that Lot is going to run to, where his wife is going to look back and watch the destruction and become a pillar of salt. But we can assume that they were probably closer to each other. They probably were city-states. They weren't countries like we think of them today, but city-states, sort of like ancient Greece. So we're looking at the south of the Dead Sea, near the valley of Sidim. So what happens? They, re they rebel. It's been a year. Here comes Kedor Laomer and his allies. You've got five kings against four. So this is very similar to a world war in a lot of ways. You've got all kinds of kings, all kinds of countries, all fighting together. And what those kings from 
Shinar and Elam are going to do. They're going to come south through the promised land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And there's three tribes that they're going to defeat. And I want to talk about these because it says they defeat the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim. And if you have an older translation or if you have footnotes there, you may have the word giants there for Rephaim. We see this word Rephaim quite a bit. According to Deuteronomy and Joshua, the Rephaim were Anakim. And we've talked about the Anakim before. The Anakim were latter-day Nephilim. Now, these are a lot of words. So I am in Hebrew, im is the plural ending. So it's like the letter S. So the Nephilim, the Anakim, the Rephaim, the Emim, and the Zuzim. Now, we know who the Nephilim were. Back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, it says, The sons of God, that is the angels, or rather the demons, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, took them for wives, had children with them. So you had these half-demon, half-human giants that were called the Nephilim, which means the fallen ones. And it says in verse 4 that this happened before the flood. It also says, and after. So this happened again after the flood, and this is part of the evidence for it right here. Now in Numbers 13.33, remember this, they go into the promised land, the spies, and they come back and they say, there's giants in the land. These are the Anakim. And it says there that the Anakim were like the Nephilim. It was the same thing that had happened again. We've talked about them before. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11, we're introduced to one of the Rephaim, and the Rephaim were the same kind of people. We meet this guy named Og. If you're going to have a giant, Og is a good name for a giant, I think. It says in Deuteronomy 3.11, For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. So a cubit was about a foot and a half. So this is a huge iron bed that needed to hold him up. Og, the last of the Rephaim, the last of that tribe of giants. Now we also have the Emim and the Zuzim, which we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, when it's describing different parts of the land. It says, the Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many as tall as the Anakim, like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. So what he's saying is, these are the same kinds of people, but different cultures called them different things. The Moabites referred to them as the Emim, but it's the same kind of people. And then in verse 19 and 20 of Deuteronomy 2, it says that the land of Ammon is also counted as a land of Rephaim, because Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzuzim. A people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they deposed them and settled in their place. So, in the book of Genesis here, we have these three tribes, the Rephaim, the Emim, and the Zuzim. Then in the book of Deuteronomy, the conquest narratives, when they get to the promised land, same area, we have the Rephaim, the Emim, and they call them there the Zamzumim, probably the same group of people. So, these four kings are riding through giant territory talked about this before. This is a horrifying prospect. But they subdued them. They didn't destroy them and wipe them out like Joshua did, but they subdued them. 
And later on, this land is going to be known as the land of Moab and Ammon because God is going to give this land to Lot and his two children, Moab and Ammon. Because you remember, Lot chose that side of the Jordan River and Abram chose this side. So the Lord is going to honor that and the Moabites and Ammonites are going to drive some of these giants out. So they're coming down. They go through giant land. I thought that was just kind of cool to draw that out. That This is actually in the Bible quite a bit. You just have to know what these words mean, and they're in some of the boring spots of the Bible. So you've got to take your time, use a good concordance, things like that. So then they, they come down. It says they subdue the Horites down to what we call the Gulf of Aqaba. This is El Paran. This is the very, very tip top of the Red Sea. If you look at the picture of the Red Sea, it's almost got like bunny ears coming up, these two gulfs. And that one's called the Gulf of Akaba. So they chase the, the tribe of the Horites all the way down to the Red Sea. Later on, Esau's children, the Edomites, are going to dwell in that land. And that city, Seir, which we read about here, would be the capital of Esau's people. But this is so much farther in the past, even to that, that all the places had different names and different people living there. And then they're going to they're gonna swing out to the west, and they're going to start swinging up north. They're going to defeat the Amalekites. They're going to defeat the Amorites. And they're going to come right up under the Dead Sea to the Valley of Sidim, where they're going to fight the five kings that are in rebellion. And they're beaten there. And it's interesting because it says that there were bitumen pits there. We've seen that word before. Bitumen was what they used to build the Tower of Babel. It means tar. I think the old King James has the word slime there. You get the idea. If you've ever been to California, you've been to the La Brea tar pits before. This is giant pits of tar and the, the hot black bubbling asphalt that they have found all kinds of crazy fossils in because stuff falls into it. It can't get out. And then later on, when we learn how to extract that, they've got all kinds of bones down there preserved in this tar. And this is what was in the Valley of Sedim, these big pits of bitumen or tar. And it says that as some of them fled, they fell into it. So we see even back then, this was an oil-rich area. It would be a long time before we knew how to get it out of the ground and make use of it, but there it is. So there's this battle. Now you've got to take a second here and think about how, how spectacular this event is. You, you've got invading kings sweeping through your land, cleaning everybody out, then coming after you. There's a battle of four kings and five kings in the middle of a field full of tar. People are running away, falling into it, sinking into it. This is a big deal at the time. But what concerns us the most is that they come to Sodom, they sack the city of Sodom, and all the people are taken captive, including Lot. Now, in chapter 13, verse 12, we saw that Lot had moved his tent as far as Sodom, or that is, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Now we see that he is dwelling in Sodom. So he's made himself at home. And we're going to see next time this comes up, he's even going to be part of the local government of Sodom. This is not going to end to his benefit. And even right here, we're seeing this was not the smartest thing for him to do. 2 Peter 2, verse 7, as I've said before, calls Lot righteous Lot. He was a righteous man, but he was far too interested in being a part of the world and the culture around him. He wanted to be in there. He wanted to be part of it. He wanted to be right where the action was. And now he gets kidnapped and caught up in the fate of sinners. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 18, Paul writes this to us. Do not be unequally yoked 
with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be unequally yoked. The most common way I've heard this applied is, what is an unbeliever doing dating a Christian? Or maybe we could flip that. What is a Christian doing dating an unbeliever? Well, we're in love. Okay, but it's an unequal yoking. You, you are not going in the same direction. And when you yoke oxen together, you put that big wooden or metal bar around their necks to keep them going in the same direction. So if you're both heading for different places, you're walking the narrow road and they're not, what are you doing yoked together? And you can apply that to any relationship you have. Lot was in Sodom. And Paul kind of asked all these rhetorical questions. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Oh, is it a sin to live in Sodom? No, but what are you doing there? What are you doing there? It might not be wrong for you to live there, but it's certainly not wise for you to live there. You're now getting caught up in all this stuff. When we live in this world, we are in the world, okay? We must be part of a culture just by default. We have to be. But we're not of this world. We are of a different world. We're sojourners. And we can get swept up in the current events of the day when there's wars like this one, when there's famines and pestilence and everything else. But let me ask you a question. Because when you're in the moment, when you're in the pandemic, <laughs> when you're in the election season, it's very easy to let all this stuff blow up in your mind to be so significant. Let me ask you, do you recognize a single name of these people in this story? You're like, the what? I don't even pronounce that name. Kedor, Kedor what? Is it Chedor or is it Kedor? We don't even know how to pronounce his name. But this guy was a, was a mighty warlord. He ruled over vast swaths of the ancient world, and he struck down giants, and people feared him. And we don't even care. Because that's what happens to culture. That's what happens in history. It just keeps marching on. And the only thing that we remember about this is that Abram was involved and Lot was involved. So listen, everything's going to pass away. It's okay to care. It's okay to be committed. It's okay to have an opinion. But you've got to keep that heavenly perspective. Like Psalm chapter 2, the Lord sits in the heaven and laughs. It's like, what are y'all doing? You think you're going to thwart me? You think you're going to stop me? Lot was not like these people, and yet he got caught up in their disaster because he wanted to be close to them. Don't be so tied to the sinful world that you end up sharing in their judgment. Verse 13 now. So big World War, negative three, I guess you could say, way before World War I. There's, there's this big fight. The battle is lost. Lot has been kidnapped. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew... Would you underline that? That is the first use of the word Hebrew in your Bible. Who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in the house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Saddle up, boys. 
And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram the Hebrew. Let's take a look at this word here. Abram the Hebrew. It's just like it sounds in that language. And it, it means one from beyond or one from out there <laughs> or the other side is what it means to be a Hebrew. There's a couple references to this word before it comes into common usage. The first one is in chapter 10, verse 21, in the table of nations, when we see Eber, who is the father of Peleg. Now, Eber is very similar to Ebrew, so his name would have been given to his descendants. They would have been Hebrews, descendants of Eber, maybe. We think so. It's never directly connected that way. The next time we're going to see this word used is in Genesis 39, verses 14 and 17. This is when Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce Joseph. And Joseph runs out of the house, and she tells her husband, that Hebrew you brought here, that one from beyond, that guy from over the river, that outsider. So it's, it's a derogatory term. And we're going to see it in Exodus a lot, that they refer to the Hebrews, the ones that have no home, the ones that are from out there. They don't belong here. They're exiles. And by the time we get to the book of Ezra, the term Hebrew will have fallen out of favor and we'll refer to them as Jews, which is related to Judah, which was the last tribe that was sent into exile. But it's, it's a term that refers to their nomadic status, that they moved around, that Abram pitched tents. He didn't build cities. That you're not from around here, are you? You're a Hebrew. And this is who he is. He's not from Sodom. He's not from Mamre. He's just a Hebrew. And he hears about the outcome of the battle, and he mounts a rescue to come after Lot. And it seems, uh, from verse 24, we'll get to this, that Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre went with him. We can't be sure, because it doesn't say specifically. But he rides off with 318 trained soldiers. This is where it's important to take the time to recognize Abram was a rich dude. He, he had a, a, a personal trained guard of 318 men. So when you think of Abram, like all the stories has like, you know, they've got one of those little family tents that you can buy from Bass Pro Shops and everyone kind of snugs in. You've got to think of Abram like a, like a sheik. If you've ever seen a movie from like the Arabia or Saudi Arabia or anything like that, and they're in those big tents and the big beards and very nice. And that, that's what you've got to think of Abram as. He's got lots of people that he's responsible for. And 318 of them are trained for battle. So he saddles up and goes after Lot. It's also important to know we're used to armies that are numbered in the millions or even in the, the thousands and thousands. But, you know, even back in the American Revolution, a, an army was like 15,000 people. So there were huge armies. Most of the time they weren't. So 318 people would have made a difference is all I'm trying to say here. Because you see this and you're like, hold on a minute. How is that possible? Well, it is miraculous, but it's, it's not quite as different as maybe we're used to. But he chases them as far as Dan, which is up to the north of the Sea of Galilee. And he pursues them there, splits up his forces. They attack in the night, and they pursue them as far as Hobah, which it says is north of Damascus, up in Syria. And he brings everything back. Abram was able to do what no other army could do. Not even armies of giants, I might add. With a small, hand-picked group, he defeats the enemy, and he liberates Lot. 
This is the first example we have of this in Scripture where God defeats a great host with just a few people. Think of Gideon. And the Lord said to Gideon, your army's too big. You need to get it smaller. No, it's still too big. You've got to get it even smaller. Or Jonathan and his armor bearer. Let me read you this from 1 Samuel 14, 16. In one of the wars with the Philistines. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. God doesn't need a big army. God just needs some willing people. And these are the kind of victories that we love to read about. We're going to see a ton of them in Kings and Chronicles. And we daydream about this. We want to accomplish goals for our nation and for our culture that will get us recognized. We want to win the battle and it be known that we won the battle. We want to accomplish the goal and it be known that we accomplished the goal. But Abram was able to do this because he was not desiring that kind of glory. Abram wasn't thinking, what can I do to get my name out there and promote it and, and, and take over the culture in Jesus' name? He wasn't thinking about that. He was a Hebrew. He didn't belong there, and everybody knew it. Lot was part of the culture. Lot got kidnapped. You cannot let yourself be too tied to the culture or the nation or whoever that you want to help. Even if you go overseas and you become a missionary, you cannot become so tied to who they are and what they do and how they view things that you can't help them with a heavenly perspective. We all want to be like William Wilberforce. This was the guy who led the fight for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. He spent his whole life doing this, and he, he accomplished it. In 1807, they abolished the slave trade. In 1833, they abolished slavery itself and emancipated all enslaved people. And we hear that and we go, yeah, that's the kind of Christian we want to be. We want to be the kind of Christian that makes a difference, that actually you can see what they did and you can set a date by it. And we've got biographies and paintings and everybody recognizes who we are. But here's the thing. If you hear the story of William Wilberforce or anybody else that was like this, and you think, Oh, so politics, that's the answer. You, you are missing the point. And that's, that's ignorance is what that is. This guy was hated for years. He was a pariah. Nobody wanted to be around him, even in the House of Commons where he was a representative. The politicians despised him. The war with France, all he wanted to talk about was abolition. And they're like, we're at war, who cares? And he goes, they don't care because they're still enslaved. We've got to solve this now. And they forced him to the side and to the back bench, and nobody wanted to be around him. And you know what else? That wasn't the only thing he fought for. He had a whole other thing to pass laws to prevent cruelty to animals. And you go, come on, is that really a priority, Mr. Wilberforce? Well, he certainly thought so. He also, when they renewed the charter for the, uh, the company that was colonizing India, he made it sure that it was in there that they were permitted to evangelize the people of India. Because it was against the law to evangelize Indians because they say if they become Christians, then they're going to think that they've got rights and they deserve something. And he shows up and says, uh-uh-uh, we're not doing that. This is the gospel. It's too important. So they do that. Then he starts fighting and saying, hey, there's this thing that they do in India called sati, where if a man dies and they burn his body, his wife has to climb on the pyre and, and burn with him. And he said, we've got to outlaw that. And you know what they started saying to him? See if this don't sound familiar. So we've got to stop this. And they say, you can't take your Western ideals and try and force them on somebody else. 
because you're trying to take your culture and impress it on them. And he had to fight through all of that. He got it accomplished, by the way. The reason that doesn't happen anymore is because of this, this Christian right here. He fought not as part of the culture, but as the Lord's servant. He was a fish out of water. He was a Hebrew, so to speak. So if we look at guys like that, who accomplished great things for the Lord and say, he was a politician, therefore the answer is politics. No, absolutely not. That wasn't even how he did it. Now listen, I am as patriotic and as fervent in my opinions as anybody here. I love my country. I am stubborn in my love for my country. And sometimes I need to cool off a little bit, to be honest with you. But here's the thing. We all want to see our land and our people, we want to see it prosper. That's normal. That's biblical. But if we think that doing it their way is the way to do it, we're not helping them. We're not helping the culture by doing it their way. Their way is the problem. By me loving the Lord first and obeying his word first and putting the country and the laws and the politicians second or third or whatever it is, I'm actually loving them better. Abram was better able to help his nation and his family because he was separate. Because he wasn't tied up in all this stuff, the Lord was able to use him in a miraculous way. And you could have looked at it and say, Abram, you only have 318 men. He says, I serve a God that does impossible things. It's important for us to know this. Abram chose his battles, and he only did what the Lord wanted him to do. It's like Jesus in John 5, 19. He says, the son only does what he sees the father do. That's, that's how we ought to be. I only do something if, if I have a go-ahead from God. And he had a greater impact than Lot did, didn't he? You maintain the separation and you seek the Lord's kingdom first. It's actually a better way to love the kingdom that you're living in. Well, verse 17, down to verse 20 here. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and circle this guy's name, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That is all the spoil that he had just taken. So Abram has a great victory. News reaches Sodom, the city that had just been crushed and defeated. That, oh, don't worry about it. Some Hebrew up north took care of it and he's bringing all your stuff back. So the king comes up to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. It's right here near, near Mamre. The valley of Shaveh is a little north. So the king of Sodom would have had to come north for this. You can see Salem is over here somewhat to the, the northeast, which is where Melchizedek was king. So the king of Sodom is coming, but there's another king who comes to see him first. This is Melchizedek. There would have been a C-H-H there, Melchizedek. The king of Salem. Now this Salem is the same Salem as Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Yeru in Hebrew just means city. So Jerusalem means city of peace because Salem means peace. So this is the same city. This is the king of Jerusalem who is also priest of God most high. That God most high there is El Elyon. It means God the highest God. 
and he blesses Abram in his name. He calls him the possessor of heaven and earth. That's a pretty cool title. He's the one that owns all this stuff. We just talked about which king is over which city and who's fighting over what and which territories are changing hands. The Lord is the one that owns everything. And he blesses not only Abram, he blesses the Lord for what he has done for Abram. And he brings out bread and wine. Isn't that interesting? And in 14 verse 20, we have the most remarkable thing. Abram gives a tithe of all the spoils to Melchizedek. Why? Who is this guy? Why does Abram honor him like that? Why This random king from Salem, which is not the, the holy city Jerusalem yet, it's just Salem, and he comes out and blesses him and he gives him a tenth of everything. Well, the short version is that this is the priest of the Lord. Now, knowledge of God at this point was not limited to the children of Israel. And in fact, we're going to see several times in the Bible that there were other kings and other priests that knew of the Lord. We think of uh, Moses' father-in-law. Jethro was one of those. And so he's going to give the priest a, a tithe. Tithe is, comes from the word tenth in Scripture. This is actually the first time in the Bible we see a tenth being given or a tithe being given. And once this is over, we don't hear about Melchizedek again until we get to the book of Psalms. And we're also going to see him a lot in the book of Hebrews. Psalm 110 verse 4 says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It would have been interesting when David gives the, the musicians this song and like, you're singing about Melchizedek? Wasn't he that, that dude back in Genesis? Why are we singing about him? It's very interesting. Psalm 110 is what's called a royal psalm. It's, it's an arbitrary classification, but it's helpful. A royal psalm was a psalm about the king. And it's all about how the king will be blessed by the Lord and he'll crush his enemies and everything else. But then we get here in verse 4, you are a priest. The king was not supposed to be a priest. That was a major, major Old Testament no-no for the king to also be the priest. They had separation of church and state, if you want to put it that way. 2 Chronicles 26, you've got a story about a king named Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. You probably know him from Isaiah chapter 6, where it says, the year King Uzziah died. Well, he, he was a king. He was a good king. But he came into the temple, into the holy place, with a censer to burn incense in the temple. And the priests showed up ready to run him out of that temple. He gets angry, and the Lord strikes him with leprosy right there in the temple. And he was leprous for the rest of his life and had to stay up in a tower all by himself. The Lord was not messing around. He says, the kings do not get to be the priests. You must be a son of Aaron. Not only that, you must be a son of Phineas if you want to be a high priest. And you must be a son of Zadok if you want to be a high priest. The Lord is very specific about who could be a priest. And only the sons of David could be kings. They were separate from each other. But here in this psalm about the king, in verse 4, he says, you are a priest. So what's happening here? The kings were of the line of David, who of course was of the tribe of Judah. Not the line of Aaron. So what's happening here? Well, the New Testament quotes from Psalm 10 more than almost any other psalm in the Old Testament. Actually, any other passage in the Old Testament. 
This is also a messianic psalm because the language that this psalm uses to describe the king is too grand to just refer to the king. It's too great for that. This is where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And in the New Testament, they'll say, why does David call his descendant, the king, Lord? Because this is about the Messiah. So to sum this up real quick, Psalm 110 is prophesying that the Messiah will come and the Messiah will unite the offices of priest and king together in himself. Very unique, very special thing. This is what Melchizedek did. He was the king of Salem, but he also was the priest. So we have this prophecy in the Old Testament that there is going to come a day where the offices of king and priest will be united. And it's mysterious and it's strange. And there probably were a lot of doctoral dissertations written about what that meant back in the day. But we don't know until we get to the book of Hebrews. You better turn there because we're going we're gonna to read quite a bit of this. This is one of the three or four most important themes that the author of, to the Hebrews picks up. Now, we know that Jesus was the Messiah. So we know that Jesus, according to Psalm 110, is not just our king. He's also our high priest because he ties these things together. Now, this author, of course, is writing to Hebrews. He's writing to Jews, Jewish Christians. And he's going to try to explain to them, well, how is that possible? How can Jesus, who was of the tribe of Judah, be a priest? How can he offer a sacrifice, even a cosmic one, if he's not one of the priests? Well, he explains this here, and I'm, I'm going to read to you some of the most important sections here. He picks this up at the end of chapter 4 and carries it to the end of chapter 7. But we see that in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, we get a, a description of a priest. What does it mean for Jesus to be a priest? It says that he would be appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. He's going to represent us to the Lord to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's a priest. That's who Jesus is. Hebrews 5 verse 9 calls him the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him because he is the priest of the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 6 verse 19, because he is a priest of the order of Melchizedek, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So it's a big deal. And in these early chapters of this section, he's, he's referring to it, he's describing it, and it's cool. But then when he gets to Hebrews chapter 7, he's really going to explain and prove this biblically about the parallels between Jesus and Melchizedek. And he's going to explain two things very quickly. We're going to do this quickly. How is it possible for there to be a king, priest, and why was it even necessary to have a king priest? So I hope you've turned to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to read this, and, and we're going to do it in chunks and, and summarize some of this. So we know who Melchizedek was. We know what Psalm 110 promised. We know that there's all kinds of benefits to Jesus being our high priest. But how is this possible? Well, let's start reading. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. That's what we just read. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So, first thing he's going to do in explaining why it's possible for Jesus to be our high priest, he gives the origins of a Melchizedek-like high priest. So, 
He, he does a word study first on the name Melchizedek. And this is Melchi, which is a, a form of the word Malak, which means king in Hebrew, and Tzedek, or Tzedakah, which would mean righteousness in Hebrew. So you put them together, Melchizedek, and you get king of righteousness. King of Salem, I've already described. Salem means peace. It's related to that word shalom when they greet each other. It would have been the king of shalem is how they would have pronounced it. But he's saying, so he's a king of righteousness. He's a king of peace. And in this story that we just read, there is no background to Melchizedek given. We don't get his genealogy. We don't get his parents. And we don't see how he ends. And the, the book of Hebrews draws that out and says, it's very similar to Jesus, who had no beginning and will have no end, who is a king of righteousness and a king of peace, and he's going to continue forever and ever. So how is it possible for him to be the, the priest that we need? Because he's eternal. He doesn't start, he doesn't end. Very similar to Melchizedek in that story. Keep reading into verse 4 now of Hebrews 7. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, that's Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, so we know Jesus can be our high priest because he has eternal origins. But we also know that he ranks higher than the normal priesthood. A Melchizedek priest ranks higher than a Levite priest. He, he takes actually quite some time here to explain that Abram gave tithe or tribute to Melchizedek, which puts Abram lower than Melchizedek. And then he says, therefore, if Abram is lower than Melchizedek, then Aaron the priests of Aaron are definitely lower than Melchizedek. So if their great father would pay tithes to this man, then in a sense, they, even though they haven't been born yet, are paying those same tithes. So the second thing we see here, why is it possible for Jesus to be our priest? He ranks higher than the Levite priests do. Because he also lives, it says, he lives. That is, he lives forever. He ranks higher. A Melchizedek priest is above a Levite priest. So eternal origins, a higher rank. Verse 11 now. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is the third thing. How is it possible for Jesus to be our high priest? He has eternal origins. He has a higher rank. Number three, he's got the proper credentials. 
What does it take to be a Levitical priest? Well, there's all kinds of things laid out in the law. But he says, but it's greater than that because Melchizedek's priests are forever. They're eternal. To be after the order of Melchizedek is to be forever, an indestructible life. And he's drawing this out because of Psalm 110, but also because we never read about the end of Melchizedek in this story. And Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, but he fits the bill because he had an indestructible life. And we know that because they tried to destroy his life and he rose again on the third day. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. So how is it possible for Jesus even to be a priest? He's not a Levite. Well, he has eternal origins. He ranks higher and he's got the proper credentials. Okay, I'm with you now that Jesus is a priest or could be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But why is that even necessary? Why do we need that? Let's keep reading in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. That's a great verse to underline, by the way. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. I love verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Okay, so we've explained how is it even possible for Jesus to be a priest. We know, eternal origins, higher rank, proper credentials. But now, why do we even need that? Why is that necessary? He explains that the law was insufficient because even the priests were sinful. Even the priests had to pay for their own sins. They died as punishment for sin, so it wasn't enough. It made nothing perfect. It could only cover sin temporarily. It could never fix the problem of sin. But he calls Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And he refers again to that resurrection life, that indestructible life. Hebrews will also explain that he's not only the, he's not only the priest, he's the sacrifice too. But we're not going to get into that tonight. So this is the first thing we see, why do we need it? Because there is a need. Because the old covenant was insufficient. And the new covenant, he just says it, it's better. It's better. There's no need to get rid of the new covenant because he, our priest, endures forever. And why else was it necessary? Verse 25. I love these verses, but I will not be able to spend too much time on them. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." So why was it necessary? Because the first one was insufficient and the new one is final. There's finality to the new covenant. He's a better priest. It's a better priesthood because he lives forever so he can make intercession forever. He doesn't have to cover his own sins. And his intercession is good for that reason. He doesn't have to say, Lord, forgive me and now forgive them. He offered a sacrifice once for all. 
So this is this, the thread we see throughout the Bible, that there would be a man who would come and unite priest and king together like Melchizedek. Well, that, of course, was Jesus. And a good law-abiding Jew would have said, well, how is that possible? And the writer of the Hebrew says, well, he has eternal origins like Melchizedek. He has a higher rank like Melchizedek. And he has the proper credentials like Melchizedek. Okay, I get it. But why do we even need that? Isn't the law fine? No. Number one, the law is insufficient. And number two, the new covenant is better. It's final. Jesus is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Very cool. So Melchizedek, he's a mysterious figure in Scripture. He's a priest, as Hebrews draws out a lot, without origin, without destiny. He's just there. The Psalms took him up as a picture of the Messiah. And Hebrews explains that this is what makes Jesus exactly what we needed. A man out of time who could pay for sins once for all. Now here's the big question. And this you may have heard taught before. Was Melchizedek in the book of Genesis just a man? Or was this a Christophany? Christos means Christ. Phani means like appearance, like an epiphany. So a Christophany. Was this a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? A couple things. Number one, we know those did happen. When Joshua saw the commander of the army of the Lord and he received worship, for example. He comes out. But what does he bring to Abraham? Bread and wine. What do we take when we have communion together? Bread and wine. And you read through the book of Hebrews and he's, he's really pumping up Melchizedek, isn't he? So here's what I'll say, though. We, we've just read every verse that, in the Bible that talks about Melchizedek. I think the Bible leaves that possibility open, but it does not make it definite. And if I had to lean and say, which one do I think? I would say probably not. Only reason because when you read the book of Genesis, he's not blinking in and out of nowhere. He was a king. He had a, he had a city that he ruled over. But I mean, even there, it's like this is the king of Jerusalem who rules over Gentiles, but also receives tribute from the Jews. It's really, very, very cool. I think the symbolism is what's most important. But if you want to believe that, rock and roll. There are better Christians than me that think that. And if you get me on the right day, I'll probably agree with you. But uh, anyway, draw your own conclusions. Do your own Bible study. The main thing for us to grasp here, you have a priest. You have an advocate in heaven. I'm not your priest. I'm not your, your go-between. I'm not your mediator. You have one mediator. That's Jesus Christ. And he lives forever. You don't want me. Go for Jesus. He shares. We can all share Jesus. It's okay. He's already paid for your sins. And every time we take that bread and we take that cup together, we're reminded of what he's done for us. We're reminded that the sacrifice has already been paid. One sacrifice for all time. And just like Melchizedek blessed Abram, we've been blessed by Christ. And we owe him not just a tithe, we owe him everything in obedience and in gratitude. And, you know, this is all, it's kind of strange. This is not normal human conversation. No one out there is out there talking about Melchizedek and the king of Salem and all that. But this is the rule under which we operate. This is the reality that Jesus bought with his blood. There is a heavenly king and a heavenly priest who looks out for you. He possesses the earth. So why do we want to get drawn in like Lot to the world and its petty little squabbles? I'm not worried about the king of Zoar. I'm not worried about the king of Elam. I'm worried about the king of kings, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen? Well, let's hurry to the end here. Verse 21 through 24. Back in Genesis chapter 14. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the young men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Okay, so you remember the king of Sodom came to see Abram, and he begins to negotiate for the return of his hostages. His army's just been crushed. He's got no leverage here. He shows up to this, as I said, this wealthy sheik from up north who conquered all these, these armies, and he's thinking, there's no way I'm getting all this stuff back. He's going to keep it for himself. We're going to have a new king named Abram. And he comes up, and all he says is, look, at least let the hostages go. You keep all this stuff. Give me the people back. But Abram does not do that, does he? He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. It's kind of like you lift your hand in court. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth? I've made a vow. That is, I will not receive a blessing from anyone except the Lord, the possessor. Can you imagine how this might have gone if Abram kept all that stuff and there's Sodom over there and everybody that comes by to pay tribute to Abraham, he's like, well, I mean, that's all my stuff. You know, that's my stuff, right? I, I kind of let him have it, you know, because you know, he's, a, he's a good man. He's been a good king. That's really mine, you know. And he could have taken some of that glory. God doesn't share his glory with anybody. And Abram's like, I'm not even going to take a sandal strap from you, pal. He does make accommodations for the three other guys that went with him, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, but he's not going to let Sodom boast over him. We've already read in verse 13 of the last chapter that the Sodomites were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We know their reputation. We know the coming judgment. They were evil men. And Abram was so careful to keep himself detached from that wickedness that he refused to even benefit from something he might have, you could say, he earned. He learned that lesson in Egypt. When I get riches from wicked people, it does not pan out for me. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. I don't know if there's a better illustration of that than this story here. He could have said, well, if I get all of Sodom's gold, I can build a great golden temple to the Lord and everyone will serve me. Maybe this is God's way of giving me the promised land. I can be king now. It's like, I'm not taking a thing from you. I know what your city is like. I know your people. I, know, I don't want to be even kind of connected to you. I don't want there to be a single bit of relationship between your wickedness and me. Even when we have common goals with the world, even when we're working for the same thing, they both wanted those captives back. But we've got to maintain our distinction and our distance from them. Abram got that. It's like, no, 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 we're not buddies. We're not allies. You go your way, I'll go mine. This is over. You do not need any group or political party to stand for what God has already told you to stand for. Well, if you want to stand against racism, you've got to stand with these people. No, I don't. If you want to stand for free speech and you want to stand for religious liberty, you've got to stand with these people over here. No, I don't. All I need is the word of the Lord to guide me. Well, then you're going to be out of the loop. You're not going to be right in there. I don't need to be in there. I don't need that glory. I don't want it to be said that I accomplished the will of the Lord with the help of these godless people. Whether it's an R or a D or whatever other letter you want to come up with at the end of their name. It's God who delivers, not you and not them. Abram was the hero of this story because he refused to gain worldly treasures from a wicked man. 
James 1.27 says that pure and undefiled religion is to keep yourself unstained from the world. We've got to retake the culture. No. I know it sounds really good and it sounds really spiritual. Guys, it's not. You let the Lord do that. We've got to elect political champions. No, 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 no. Listen, vote for good people. Advocate for, for good causes, but don't trust in those things. And don't let them compromise you. Do not let it be said that Sodom made you rich. Abram was allergic to that idea, and we should be too. So really interesting story, some cool theology that we got to break down, but I think the application is real simple. We see it in 1 John 2. Don't love the world or the things in the world. You are a Christian, and in that sense, you are a Hebrew. You are a sojourner. You're one from beyond. You don't belong here. Your hope is out there somewhere. So stay unstained from the world. This doesn't mean you hate the world. It doesn't mean you despise people. It makes you love the world better because God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And he told us, don't get caught up in their mess. You're there to save them from their mess. So don't get wrapped up in it. So work out righteousness. Rescue the ones who are lost. Proclaim the liberty. Proclaim good news. But y'all, don't do it as part of the wicked system of the world. You do it as an outsider whose only loyalty is to God because he is, as Melchizedek said, the true possessor of all things, isn't he?